my golden rule is when I get a property that, that I really think there's going to start being liability, maybe it's not a single family home, but maybe I have a, I have that first duplex or that first four unit building. And there's enough comings and goings where I don't want the risk of it affecting my other assets. That's when I think you really want to consider forming a, a, you know, an asset protection vehicle, like one of these two entities to protect yourself. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on Jeff Love. Jeff is a partner with Gibbs Gidden, and his practice includes all facets of real estate transactions, including drafting and negotiating purchase sale agreements, syndications, financing transaction with commercial, industrial, and residential assets. Beyond real estate, though, he also has a significant experience in a wide range of corporate transactions, including private security offerings of debt and equity, mergers and acquisitions, and then this concept of asset-based lending and borrowing. You're going to want to stick around to the end as we kind of dig into what that really means and how we can leverage that in our own portfolio. But I truly believe that setting up your legal structure for your real estate investing is the key to long-term success. So there's a lot we're going to learn from Jeff, and I'll just stop right there and say, Jeff, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, Jeff, we like to start the people off with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? I've got many, but I'll go with raspberry truffle chunk. I think it's a chain, but it's down the street from our house and they have all these unique flavors, black cherry, you know, graham cracker, but the raspberry truffle chunk kind of hits the best of all the different worlds for me. That's a pretty specific one. Where, um, where is the chain or where's the, the ice cream parlor down the street? It's called Handles, and I think they're throughout the country, but they've only got, I want to say like 10 or 15 locations. The one I'm going to is close to home in Redondo Beach. Okay, so if you're in Redondo Beach, California, you need to go to Handles to get the raspberry truffle chunk, huh? There we go. All right, I like it. I like it. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? I'm, a, as you said, I'm a real estate corporate transactional attorney uh, at a law firm with about 40 attorneys. And my day to day is helping real estate investors, developers, entrepreneurs buy and sell real estate. And that everything from, think of me like a, like a dirt lawyer, I'm going <laughs> to help them buy the real estate, help them with construction, financing it, leasing it, kind of soup to nuts. And similar on the corporate side, we'll help clients form a business, grow it, raising capital, buying, you know, buying other businesses, selling their business. So really your, your deal lawyer with transactions. And it's kind of a tangent for me because I always actually wanted to be a real estate developer. That's why I went to law school. I'm going to learn about the law. I'm going to learn about transactions and be able to read contracts and do it for a couple of years. And then I'll go off and be a real estate developer. I don't know, was it 10, 12, actually maybe more, more years later when I age myself, uh, I'm still doing it. I love it because I get to help different types of clients on different size deals at different stages. And I'm kind of behind the scenes. So instead of focusing just on my own projects, I get to work on across this wide spectrum of different, different businesses, different issues at different times. And uh, every day is a new adventure. Yes. Nice. Well, I can't wait to dig in there. But before we get there, tell our listeners, where did your real estate journey begin? Probably in high school. My father's a travel agent and he would sell tickets to this very wealthy man that owned a real estate development company. And he owned 
probably 20 million square feet or so across the country of retail and industrial assets. And I thought, you know, that seems like a good way to make money. And he seems happy. He's going on all these fancy trips. So I kind of got that bug. And then through college and, and lost point, that I just want to be involved with real estate. It's, you get to build something. And it's not like other professions, you know, if you actually build an apartment building and you own it, there's this real tangible thing that you can go and visit, see, touch. And depending on what type of real estate you own, if it's multifamily, which I tend to like, it's people always need a place to live. So it's been one of the classic wealth generators over time. And I just caught that bug and never really left. Yeah. That um, Did your family do any real estate with him or... Or was he just a client of your dad's because of the travel agency stuff? Just the latter. They never did. I I really wish he did because if he had invested decades ago, then I maybe would have some you know, trust fund or something. <laughs> and go go work for my dad. And you know, but no, he was just kind of the travel agent. But I actually did end up working for that friend for a few years after law school was actually, I think my first position out of law school. And I was one of their really their first in-house attorney um, and worked on a bunch of their deals. So it kind of came full circle for me, catching the real estate bug from him then working there and then eventually leaving there to come to my current law firm. Gotcha. Well, are you an investor yourself? I know you work on a lot of transactions, but are you an investor yourself? I am. So my wife and I, our first investment, we actually bought a fourplex apartment building. And that's something that we own directly. And we also... From time to time, we'll invest in other real estate ventures, usually real estate syndications, often as a limited partner. Um, and I'll take my kind of real estate day job and kind of parse those deals. And it's something that gives us exposure to different types of real estate assets, um, different areas of the country, different sizes. So it's a really great way to not have all our eggs in one basket within the real estate uh, asset class. Yeah. Well, let's start with the the fourplex. Where is that today? When did you buy it? Talk, talk to us a little bit about that. It is in Redondo Beach. Uh, we always wanted to invest in real estate and we were most familiar with multifamily as most people will be. You always need a place to live, whether you're living in an apartment or a house, it's, it's familiar. You know, you're familiar with paying rent with the types of expenses, as opposed to buying a retail property with the brokers and completely different animal. So we wanted something close to home where we really understood what the rental market was like. Um, we'd been renters for, for years before we bought our first house. Um, so we kind of understood the rental market, what rates were, what were, because we had been paying them, um, something that we could go and potentially manage ourselves at the beginning. So we found a, a fourplex in Redondo Beach that kind of fit the parameters and we purchased it in 2018. Um, the one unique thing about that and a lot of investing in California in general is our building is, is not a cash flowing building. It, you know, we are make money every month, but it's not something that's gonna have high yields. We're bought it more with appreciation in mind given where it is, and we bought it for our, our kids. So our three kids under five are extremely lucky and they each own about 8% of the building already um, and figured, you know, by the time they get it, there'll be little to no mortgage. 
We were able to get residential financing, a 30-year great fixed mortgage because it's only four units. And that mortgage will pay down and they can leverage it at that time or go into a bigger asset. But our investment strategy was buy it and hold it for the long term. We love the market and think things will just keep appreciating. And as the rents go up, then our cash flow will as well. It'll just be a longer term process than some of the real estate investments that I'm more passive in. Yeah, I know we talked right before that California is more of an appreciation market where there are cash flow markets and, and appreciation markets. And unfortunately, California is more of an appreciation market than cash flow. But I want to pull one thing out that you mentioned real quick, and that's you were able to get a residential loan on the property because it was four units. And for listeners out there that are looking to go into commercial, that's typically five units and above. And because it's five units and above, you can get a commercial loan, which has different structures, usually a 20 to 25 year AM versus amortization then versus a 30 year. But I, I also like this idea that you bought it for your kids. Are, are you, um, is the plan to teach them how to run the property or teach them about money with this property? Like what's the overall strategy there? Cause I love this idea of buying your kids an asset or a building or some getting them involved in real estate so they can one, understand the value of a dollar, but two, also be contributing to a business and learn some work ethic. What, what's your, you, you all's plan there? I think it was a combination of everything. One, just to kind of diversify out of equities and get something in real estate and something to really leave to them. And our goal is to obviously acquire more buildings and hopefully maybe leave one to each of our, our three kids. But it was also really to teach them. I have a partner who has several part, uh, several buildings that he owns in real estate and I got the idea from him really to start gifting the kids interest, not only to kind of get it out of your estate plan, maybe lower your taxes, depending at what rate you are, but also teach them, you know, you're going to get a distribution every month of what this money is and what do you want to do with your distribution? Are you going to go you know, buy that, buy a toy with it? Are you going to keep it? Do we want to keep it in the company and buy another asset? So it really, they're a little young now. My oldest is only five, but as they get older, I think it will be a great tool to teach them about money. And if the worst happens, you know, we're, my wife and I, we're the managers of it. So we kind of control what we do with the cash flow. So it's not like we have to distribute all this money to the kids, but we can. So it, it really gives a lot of flexibility, not just in terms of wealth building, but teaching. And hopefully it'll be a, a great asset and appreciate over time as well. Yeah. I know one of the strategies I've heard too, is when you have a child to put it on an 18 year mortgage. That way, when they turn 18 and it's time for them to go out and be an adult in the world, you've given them this asset that, hey, you can either sell this and go to college, you can either live in it, and now you have a place to live, or you can sell it and do whatever you want with it. But I have done my duty as a parent to kind of set you up for success. And what you do from there as an adult is on you. That would be a great idea. Uh, it's a little expensive for us. So as we got a 30-year fixed California by the beach is... is yeah, <laughs> cheap. You kind of get that. You pay the price, but you have the appreciation. But that's generally our idea too: is to kind of, you know, pay it down. And if we did refinance it, to buy another building to, you know, hopefully give each one of them this asset where, you know, if everything else went to, you know, put, they'd have a place to live and maybe rent out the other units or use 
or sell that and buy themselves a house to start a business. It gives, you know, it's a nest egg to hopefully pass on as well. And that's just kind of one part of our real estate portfolio, I think, is to buy these multifamily buildings directly and, and build that. Hopefully our number of units will increase over time. I don't have kids today, but I certainly love the idea of using real estate to help them learn all facets of money and responsibility and just things like that. So I love that idea. I know we were chatting a little bit before the show too, that you also have passive investments as well and LP positions and other people's syndications and other people's deals. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like what your portfolio looks like from that standpoint? Um, and we'll go from there. Sure. So I have probably half a dozen different other passive investments ranging from you know, smaller commercial multifamily buildings to uh, retail strip centers and industrial buildings that we are just passive investors in. So there is a sponsor, general partner that put the deal together. They're the one that's really running the day-to-day -day management of it. And we invest and we get our monthly, quarterly check. And I like those because one, it helps us diversify because, you know, one of them is in uh, the kind of the Smoky Mountains area as a, it's an Airbnb rental. And I don't know the first thing about the area. So it would be a really bad idea for me to just go and buy something, um, not knowing anything, but we have a sponsor that really knows it. So I'm able to take advantage of these, of these different markets and also bigger deals, you know, our personal investments, a four unit building, but I have one that's a, it's an eight unit building, things that we wouldn't be able to really get on our own. So it gives us exposure to these, these bigger assets. I think it's a really, it's almost a better deal. Um, especially if you're a busy professional being an investor in some of these syndications, because you're not responsible for the management on our building we want to save money on it. So we don't have a property manager. So I'm leasing it myself. Uh, if there's a plumbing issue, um, that's my wife's job, not to do the plumbing. She'll smack me, but to communicate with a lot of our different you know, vendors for a plumbing issue or electricity, whatever it may be to get those things fixed. When in the Smoky Mountains, is that in Gatlinburg per se? Per chance, I think it is in. I'm going to mispronounce the name, so don't help me. S uh, Severville, Severville, Severville. That's where yeah. it's located. But actually, in the PPM that we did, it was uh, listed. Uh, Gatlinburg was listed. All kind of different cities, and how that great of investment that was. You know how close to all these metropolitan cities, uh, growing. But that, that's where it is. Yeah, I, I grew up about an hour uh, from there. So I know that area very well and went to school about 20 minutes from there as well. So it, it's a great market for short-term rentals. And what I love about that market specifically is they built that entire town off of short-term rentals. So this idea that the government or the city council is going to come in and start regulating that, it's absolutely not going to happen, in my opinion, because their entire economy is built off of that. But you made a point around <laughs> you know some of the LP uh, positions are a better fit. And, and in my view, unless you just really love the day-to-day -day grind, the operating and, and doing that sort of sweat equity on properties, an LP position can actually be a better risk reward adjusted position than a general partner position. And what I specifically mean by that is, let's just say that over the long haul of an investment, you might get a 15% IRR over five years, where the GP might end up getting like a 17 or a 20% IRR or have little capital in it. 
But the GP is also responsible for all the legal issues that happen if somebody slips and falls or breaks their neck or sues, all the day-to-day management, all the finding of the deal, all the, all the closing of the deal and the, the investor relations and things like that. So from a standpoint of if you have a high network skill, sometimes an LP position is actually a better time risk reward position than, a, than, a, than owning the asset yourself. Absolutely. You know, if you're a tech professional, doctor, lawyer, accountant, you may not have the time to do this yourself because it is, it can be a full-time business dealing with all those different components you mentioned, but that doesn't mean that you can't get the advantages of investing in real estate and you're really shielding your liability because many of these companies are set up as limited partnerships or LLCs. So your exposure is really limited to what you've invested where if you're the general partner, there's ways to set it up to limit it, but you're dealing with the lawsuits, you're dealing with investor relations, you're dealing with guarantees on loans, and it involves time. So if you wanna keep your day job, but just really diversify your assets, start investing in real estate, being a limited partner in a syndication or a fund with a sponsor with a good track record is, is a great way to not only get your feet wet, but to grow wealth and, also to diversify your assets. And that's one of the reasons that I take advantage of them um, just because it helps diversify. I couldn't even name the city in the Smoky Mountains. So I certainly don't want to be responsible for the day-to-day management of it, but having someone local that really knows the area lets me take advantage of it while not having to have that firsthand knowledge. Yep. I want to switch now because you mentioned the legal responsibilities or the legal uh, boundaries of owning assets into kind of that aspect of the conversation. And I've heard you go over your five W's of asset protection and any legal protection in owning real estate. Can you explain that to our listeners and we'll we'll take it from there? It is uh, the the same kind of acronym we've all learned in kindergarten or first grade, except I'll leave out that the how it's, you know, the who, what, when, where and, and why. And really, it goes to asset protection is when you own any type of real estate or any asset in your own name, you have exposure. You own your car, if your insurance doesn't cover it and you get an accident, you have exposure. If you're owning a you know four-unit rental building and you have an Amazon delivery and they slip and fall, well, you potentially have exposure. Or you have a tenant that has a party and someone falls off a balcony, well, they're going to, you own the building, you're going to get sued personally. And it's not only the building that's at risk in your equity there, but they can go after your retirement accounts, uh, equity that you may have in a company, options, your car, retirement accounts. So it's kind of a scary concept. So the asset protection is really, should I own this real estate or this asset in a limited liability entity? And in real estate, the two most common that we see are an LLC and a limited partnership. So my who, what, when, where, and why is really who should invest in, who should create these and anyone that wants the protection. The what is the two types of entities. Uh, Where really depends on your state that you own real estate, but you'll see a lot in Delaware, see a lot in Nevada, Wyoming, because they have certain privacy protections. But for the most part, you may form it just in the state where you own the real estate. One of the biggest ones though, is when, when should you form this? And you know, why do you form it? You, you, you form it because it gives you the liability protection that you, you seek, but 
you also don't want to form it before you really have a deal. I get a lot of investors. Well, I'm thinking about buying this, this property. Should I form an LLC? Well, what happens if you don't end up buying it? Well, now you've spent money forming the LLC and paying your franchise taxes. But on the flip side, once you sign a contract under your name, you're potentially liable for any breaches of that purchase agreement or the document that you're signing. So it's often a fine line as to when to create it. But the golden rule is you want to create it before you start exposing yourself to real liability so that you have that corporate shield in place. Yeah, I want to go ahead and throw a caveat out for you. Although Jeff is a lawyer, he is not your lawyer. And your situation is different than maybe what he's going to talk about. We're only talking education here, but I'm going to use this time with an attorney to ask some specific questions that I've always had on my mind. And the first is really that win, right? So it wasn't until I think the third property that I owned that I really started looking at asset protection as a strategy. But would your would a general rule of thumb or guidance be like, hey, once you have that first one, let's start getting some legal protection in place? I think it's worth the conversation, at least, you know, with your attorney to, to really go through that and your accountant as well. Because if you own, you know, two properties, it may not be worth it because you may lose the you may lose uh, applicable deductions or it may be harder to get a loan in an LLC than you can as an individual. For our loan, you know, when we originally got it for our apartment building, it was in our own names. And then we eventually transferred it into the LLC. So there certainly are things to think about when you're doing that. But my golden rule is when I get a property that, that I really think there's going to start being liability, maybe it's not a single family home, but maybe I have, a, I have that first duplex or that first four unit building. And there's enough comings and goings where I don't want the risk of it affecting my other assets, that's when I think you really want to consider forming a, a, you know, an asset protection vehicle like one of these two entities to protect yourself. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about the idea of having insurance on a property and legal protection and kind of what the differences are between those two uh, asset protection strategies? That's a great question. So insurance can protect you. So can these so can these entities, and they can do so, you know, separately and, and together. I don't think there's any substitute for insurance. So, you know, that first property, you may you may be adequately covered with insurance. You may have a, a sufficient policy. You may have an umbrella policy, and that's enough. There's always loopholes in insurance. There's exclusions. You think where we are now? There are many many restaurants and other types of businesses that thought they were covered. And they weren't covered through a pandemic. So that's one thing where insurance might have a hole. With an entity, you know, I'm protecting my other assets, my retirement accounts, for example. But my entity is still on the hook, my equity. So if I've put you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars into an apartment building and I get sued, even if I have an LLC, that equity is at risk. So that doesn't cover me 100%. But if I had insurance and the entity, well, now that slip and fall case, they'd have to go through insurance and have to exceed my limits. But then I've, I've protected my other assets because the worst that can happen is I'll lose my equity in the building. So I'm a strong advocate of, of, of both. 
And I don't think there's any substitute on your team of professionals to have a great insurance broker that can make sure that you are adequately protected, no matter what type of, whether it's real estate, whether we're investing in equities, any type of thing, just to make sure that you have the appropriate coverage because one bad lawsuit can just can, can change the whole course of events for you. Yeah, I would agree. So I kind of want to break this down in terms of like insurance will give you a specific amount of coverage. So you might have a $250,000 or $500,000 coverage for medical insurance. So if your your resident falls down the stairs and uh, you are found liable, the insurance company could, depending on how the policy is written, cover you up to that 250 or 500. But if they fall and they're paralyzed, all of a sudden, like you've got a bigger issue on your hand. And maybe the the judge says, hey, that's a $5 million uh, claim that you're going to have to fill. Well, insurance is really only going to cover up to $500,000. And now you're responsible for that. Where from a legal perspective, help me out here. If it's in an LLC, you could essentially just say, well, the only thing this LLC owns is this house and you can take the house, but you can't come touch my retirement accounts, my equity options, my my personal residence and all this other stuff. You said it perfectly. It's what you put into that company is what's at risk. So if the company has you know, bank accounts, it's at risk. But if you've put in, you know, call it $200,000 to buy this property, they can take the property, they can take your equity, but they're not going to come after you for anything else. And I'll throw in a lawyer caveat as well, provided you've done what you need to do. And with these limited liability companies, limited partnerships, you don't want someone to be able to pierce the corporate veil, which is our lawyer speak for saying that they can a plaintiff can disregard that entity because you've commingled that entity's bank account with your own or you haven't done the appropriate filings for it. So as long as you've maintained that entity and in compliance and you haven't done, you know, you haven't been bad and mixed it with your personal bank account, then the only thing that is at risk is what that LLC owns. Yeah. So I want to double down on that because this is something I'm learning as I'm going through this process of setting up LLCs and trust and, and different things like that is this idea of piercing the corporate entity. And what that basically means is that your LLC is a different person. It is a different entity altogether. So essentially, I can't just say, hey, LLC, here's $5,000 and I'm going to take out $2,000 and I'm going to go buy this car and take a vacation with this $5,000, $3,000. You can't just be mingling funds in and out of it. What, maybe you could with some proper bo- bookkeeping, but you better be some darn good bookkeeping. So that my lawyer right now is really trying to teach me around like you need to have a bank account just for that LLC. All the money flows in and out of that. And when that reaches a certain amount, then you can write a distribution check to you and essentially take money out of it. But you've got to make sure your books are tight and you're you're keeping that entity separate from yourself. Anything I missed there or you would add? No, you're exactly right. And with bookkeeping, good bookkeeping, if you're doing things right, you can take proper deductions. You, there are certain things that you can use for the business. But the, the key takeaway is you need to treat it like a business. It's not your piggy bank. You have your LLC bank account and your bank account. And that is the number one way that someone could pierce the veil of that entity is because you're commingling accounts and you're not maintaining its separate corporate existence. So First thing you do, if you ever have a company, an LLC, a partnership, whatever it is, separate bank accounts, treat it like it's a different entity, which it is. And you're already light years ahead of many of the 
uh, you know, poor clients I've had in the past that have not done what they should have done. And they've mingled things and said, well, it's my LLC. It's my money. I can do whatever I want with it. And something bad happens. And that's the first thing that plaintiff attorney will, will look for if there's a slip and fall, you know, can we go after the individual? And that's one of the ways they can do it. Yep. So speaking to the listener out there that might have one, two, three, five units today uh, under management, we've scared them enough to where they need to set up an LLC or a limited partnership. The, the, the risk they often hear is this idea of a due on sale clause. Can you first help us understand what is a due on sale clause and how do you kind of work through with your clients um, around the due on sale clause? The due on sale clause um, is a provision in many loan documents where if you are selling the property that the loan becomes due. So it comes into play a lot where if you were going to sell your building, the purchaser can't assume the loan. In our context where you really want to check with your lender before you go start transferring properties into companies is making sure that they'll consent to you moving your property to a limited liability company or a partnership, and you're not going to inadvertently trigger a due on sale clause or a change in control clause because you really don't want to accelerate your loan without knowing it. Um, so that's one thing you need to be careful when you start thinking about transferring assets to different types of entities, because that clause can trip a lot of investors up. Have you in your years seen a due on sale clause? with any of your clients? I see it. I see it in almost every lo- set of loan documents we look at. So all, all the time. Well, I mean, in terms of like, hey, I'm transferring assets into this LLC. So the bank actually does a do on uh, sale. Not typically. Usually when it's, you know, a smaller, a smaller asset. And if it's, if it's owned by me as an individual and the asset's still owned by me through the LLC, Many lenders will will not care. They'll they'll allow you to do it. Where I have seen it in the past is where it's a larger asset and it's a different a different indirect owner. So if I owned the building and I was selling it to Matt and myself, Matt was going to take a majority interest. That might upset the lender because they underwrote me as the borrower, and I, I have seen it tripped up. In that circumstance, most of the time we're able to, to, to fix it and maybe kind of back out of that transaction. But I, I have on several different occasions seen it actually tripped up and lead to a mad scramble from you know, the borrower client trying to refinance because they didn't have the funds to obviously pay the loan in full. Yeah. So kind of to summarize this conversation, I've done this several times now. And I've personally never had that knock on wood, but essentially the bank underwrote map for They didn't underwrite one, two, three LLC, main street LLC. And they might not know who one, two, three main street LLC is. But what I have seen in my experience is that moving assets into an LLC, as long as you keep paying the bills, that's what the bank cares about. I mean, at the end of the day, my interest rates on some of my mortgages are 5% and the going rates three and a half. They don't want to have a due on sale clause, me refi out and get a three and a half percent loan. They're happy making 5%. So I want to be cautious here and say that it absolutely happens. It absolutely is a real thing. But from my experience, very little times, as long as you keep current with your mortgage, keep current with your insurance, keep current with your taxes, escrow, and all of those little things, a bank is going to allow that to happen because they're just happy making the money that they lent out in the first place. 
Well said. Yeah. So I want to switch this conversation now from like an active to a passive side. And this is a common question I actually have been thinking about, but I can't really get a straight answer on. So as I grow my uh, syndication portfolio and I'm investing in other people's deals, since I am a limited partner, do I need an LLC to invest in those deals? Should I have one or am I protected enough because I'm a limited partner and the, the liability really falls on the general partner? For the most part, I think you are protected. You know, if, if that LLC is created, you are you are a member or you are a limited partner. So your liability and exposure is limited to the amount of your investment. There's always an exception to the rule. And as we talked about kind of commingling and piercing the veil, there's always the chance that your sponsor of your syndication didn't do something correctly. And there's a lawsuit there and that corporate veil gets sued. And then if you are an individual investor, now your now your liability is no longer limited. So there's exceptions to the rule, but generally if your sponsor's doing what they should be, or general partner, and you as the limited partner are just investing, it's an unnecessary expense. I have a lot of clients that may have a single holding company because it helps them with deductions or taxes, and they'll hold all of their syndicated investments in a single LLC. But it's certainly it's certainly not a requirement. And it may, you may be spending money where you don't need to. You really want to look at the facts of each situation and make sure you know, the, the general partner is doing what they're supposed to be doing. And in your situation, will it give you any type of you know, advantage from a tax standpoint with deductions if you were to create this, this holding company? Gotcha. Gotcha. And then from a limited partner's perspective, since I have an attorney on the line, I can ask him a question. What should I be looking for in my PPMs and my legal docs that they send over as maybe a gotcha or a double click with another attorney or something like that? Another great question. And it's one of the things we do all the time. Your, your first one is look at the numbers. Is the, is the profit distribution, the waterfall, is that what they promised to you? And sometimes it's confusing with different classes or is their preferred return paid? Make sure that basically what your maybe oral conversations with the general partner is reflected in that PPM and more so even the operating agreement or partnership agreement. That's number one, I'll give you three. Number two is look at the fees. You know, As the limited partner, there's nothing wrong with the general partner being compensated and whether it's acquisition fees, management fees, development fees, I've seen you know, probably two dozen different variations of what sponsors or junk partners will call them. No individual one is bad. Some can be higher than others, but look at it from a high level and make sure that that is fair for what your deal is and what you've been told or what's in the PPM is actually reflected in the operating agreement because that's the number one cause for disputes. And, you know, even if you were the, the, the investor, you don't want to have to sue your general partner and go through that process. So just making sure that you are aware of kind of what, what the fees are. And number three is what rights do I have as the investor? And that's a broad concept, but do I have a right to exit before the term of this company is up? What if I have to and get the money? Do I have any right that what are my voting rights if he wants to sell the property in two years and i was planning on this as a 10-year investment so just kind of look at what your rights and they'll usually always be limited 
because the general partner is managing it. But what rights do I have as a limited investor? Make sure that you're comfortable with those. Yeah, I like that. The numbers, the fees, and then the rights. And what I found is that when you start combing through a bunch of these PPMs, a lot of them are the same, except for really in those key areas. Um, so going, if you're if you're only going to skim through it, those three areas are, are a great place to start in terms of understanding it. Jeff, I want to switch us to our last little bit here before we get into the five toppings and, and cover this idea of asset-based lending. So as most know, just to simplify or frame up this conversation, uh, a mortgage is an asset-based lending. You're lending against the idea that you own this asset in a mortgage or in a home and that the bank can use that as collateral. But I bet through some of your merger and acquisitions and corporate structuring and, and privatization of securities and things like that, you've seen some some pretty interesting examples out there. And I'm, I'm hoping maybe you could shed some examples that you've seen in your work that will give our investors some ideas of how they could go tap some of their equities that they might already have or some of their assets that they might already have and have their money growing into different places here. Absolutely. So when you, your average person thinks of like a mortgage or a loan, they're going to think of a loan on, on real estate, your, your, your property, your asset. But there are many lenders out there for, for businesses that one will, will loan on the assets of, the, of a business, the physical, the, the equipment, uh, the, the inventory. There are lenders that lend on accounts receivable, different types of asset. It doesn't have to be real estate. So many companies are able to take advantage of that to get, you know, to get credit lines, to get term loans, revolving loans, and even individuals. If you are, if you have specific assets, you know, your equity may be tied up in your company. You've got RSUs, you've got options, you've got some type of employee equity compensation. There are lenders out there that will lend against that up to a certain, a certain value where you don't have to necessarily sell, you know, you're in a startup and you have a good amount of equity locked up there. You don't want to sell it. There are lenders that will loan against that to free up some cash for you where you can go invest in alternative assets. So keep a broad mind when you're thinking about, you know, debt, because there are lenders that are, you know, a loosely term under the kind of asset-based lending that really will open up more opportunities for you if you're looking to access additional capital. Yeah. And I wanted to throw that out there because I am a huge proponent of if you can get your money working in two different places at the same time, then you should try to look at taking advantage of those opportunities. And as you mentioned, if you own a business, it could be your accounts receivable. Hey, this person owes me money, so lend against it. It could be the fact that you own a printing machine or some kind of construction equipment and it's already paid off and some bank will loan against that. And for, for most of our listeners out there, they know that I'm in technology and it's really popular in technology to have restricted stock units or that you own a portion of equity within your company that maybe, hey, you're, you're on the upswing and you don't want to sell it to go buy a house, to go invest in other things, et cetera. There are banks out there that will loan against that. And a couple of examples I'll throw out there are Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg both bought their houses using a loan against their equity stake in Tesla and Facebook. And in fact, Zuckerberg even got his loan. I think I saw it like 2.25%. So here's a guy that's getting a cheaper rate on a mortgage, not because he's got cash in the bank, but because he owns a significant technology firm out there. So yeah, I, I just wanted to throw out out there to help our listeners start thinking of different equities that are assets that they have that they could use or tap into to go invest in real estate. 
And you made one great point with Zuckerberg's interest rate. You know, it's lending market, it's still at all time lows. So, you know, to oversimplify things, you're you're lending, you're borrowing at 3% and you're going to put your money into a syndication where you're getting a preferred return of 8% plus potential upside. Well, it's not without risk. There's there's a healthy spread out there right now. So it's, you know, if you're looking to diversify assets, you're looking to have two assets at the same time working for you. It's definitely something that worth looking into and seeing how it works for your personal situation. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to switch us now into our last five, our, our last round here. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what's a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? At risk of you laughing, I'll give you the stoking one and the serious one. My kids are little, so our, it's mainly children's book. And Llama Llama is, is their favorite about little llamas going to uh, stores and, and whatnot. But my all-time favorite book is Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And to me, that it's just a book of dealing with people and, and my profession and investing, always negotiating. I'm always trying to get people to think, look at things in a certain way. And that book is the best one I've ever read, just dealing with other people, whether it's negotiating, whether it's dealing with a three-year-old that won't turn off the TV. It's, it's a good read if you haven't done it. Yeah. And even in the digital age where everybody on the internet in the comments section needs to go read that book, uh, it is still time and true classics that uh, apply to today. So I love that answer. Have you have you ever seen the uh, ludicrous Llama Llama rap, by the way? No, I haven't, but I, I'm, I'm going to go Google that as soon as we get off because it sounds like it'd be hilarious. He he wraps the Llama Llama book and it's 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 pretty fire. I'm not going to lie. Um, all right. Our second one is um, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits and the things that you do every single day. What are some of the habits or the things that you do every day? I am very, I don't know what the word is, but I outline everything. So every day, my, kind of my tasks, I'll write it down. Maybe it's old fashioned, kind of just a, a piece of paper. I know and this is what I have to get done and I'll kind of update it throughout the day. If I don't, I will get inundated with phone calls, emails, and I'll just forget the tasks. So again, with the risk of sounding old fashioned or you know, just uh, aging myself and not keeping up with technology, I know there's better ways to do it, but just keeping a list of what needs to get done because it, it, it helps me refocus after having you know an hour call with a client or uh, looking into an investment opportunity, I can go back and say, I needed to finish these four things today. Where am I? Let me kind of refocus and get those done. Yeah, I think actually that's the most common answer we've had so far. So I, I love that answer. Um, our third one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? It's okay to not, you know, I'm going to butcher the words of how it was said to me, but it's, it's okay not to know something. And again, in practice and in dealing with people, it's, there's no way to know everything. Even in my real estate practice, there's, there's things that I don't know. I'm able to get a tax advice from another partner or go look into a different specialty. So, and investing in, in I think it's so important to you know, have appropriate team in place. And if you don't know something, have your insurance broker, have your accountant your lawyer, your financial advisor, whoever it is, it's okay to bounce things off of them. You're not, you know, you, you really aren't missing anything. It's okay not to know it. And that's the hardest thing to admit. And every client that I see that finally that clicks and goes and gets the appropriate information from the experts, they are, are so much more successful. 
Yeah, I like it. Uh, there's a famous story out there where Henry Ford's getting grilled during an antitrust hearing at Congress and the senator asked him, Mr. Ford, do you even know blah, 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 how to put together an engine? And he goes, no, Senator, I don't. But I have this little red button on my desk where I can hit that button and it will call any expert that I want in the world. And today that expert is sitting in your pocket and it's called Google. So I think it's really important to not be ignorant on things, but to understand where your level of knowledge is and what you care about, what you like learning about. Go learn those things and rely on your team uh, to to know all those other things. So great answer there. Um, Our fourth one is what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? That's a good, that, that one's a good one. Uh, it's probably more of a personal one, but you know, having three kids, I've kept them alive this far. I haven't, hopefully I haven't screwed up anything bad, but being able to balance kind of family and work attorney, it's a demanding profession, just like, you know, you're, you're, you're in tech, you're a doctor, any professional it's, it's time consuming. It takes hours, but being able to do that, but still have the personal life, spend time with family. To me, that's, each day is kind of the greatest accomplishment to be able to separate that and get everything done that I need to. Yeah. And keep your sanity through the process. Exactly. <laughs> well, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? That's, an, that's another good question. I think it'd probably be one of our uh, ex-presidents, either either Washington or Lincoln. I, I, I'm i a history major. I've always just had a passion with, with history and seeing the events that kind of do, at least those two presidents, many others I can include in the list, but those two went through, I think it'd just be a, a fascinating lunch to kind of hear what it was like for them and what they both accomplished. Yeah. I really respect the, there's this book called team of rivals by Lincoln. And it's when he got elected, he knew that they were in a divided country. So he hired his rivals to be the chiefs of staffs and the t- secretaries for all the different departments. I really respect folks that you know, get into a leadership role and don't thumb their nose at their rivals. They say, hey, how can I bring your ideas in? Because clearly it speaks to people as well. And that's what we need. So um, Jeff, phenomenal interview. I appreciate the time. I love ask, getting a, uh, un- a full hour of unbilled uh, time with an attorney. So I appreciate that with you. But if our listeners wanted to learn more about some asset protection or they have some real estate deals that they want to run by an attorney, where's the best place we can send people? I uh, send them to my website. It's got my email, phone number. It's www.gibbsgiddon.com. I'm also on LinkedIn. If you search uh, Jeff Love or Jeffrey Love, you'll find me. Uh, always happy to connect, just talk and answer questions. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Jeff. And we look forward to having you back on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.